0: If you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17 as we continue our study in the life of Abraham. Walking by faith requires a very long view of life. Walking by faith means that we don't see the things come to pass that we would like to see. It requires a, a view that's very different from an instantaneous gratification world that we live in. If we want something, we simply purchase it. We put it on a credit card. We buy it immediately. We have lost the the entire practice of delayed gratification, of earning and saving and setting aside to get a thing. And the downside of that, of course, is we want everything in life instantly. I remember when the microwave oven came out, how quickly we could do things. Can you imagine living today without warming something up in a microwave? How impatient it would be to let an oven warm up. I mean, it takes at least 20 minutes for that to happen when in 15 seconds you could warm that thing in a microwave. We would not, I mean, we're just so impatient. I used to have a, a dial microwave, and uh, I would warm up a muffin or a bagel in the morning in 13 seconds. It was very awkward to find 13 seconds on it. And I would sit there tapping my hand going, hurry up and warm up this muffin. 13 seconds of my time, I'm impatient. And I've got a digital one. It, it saves so much time to just put 13 and walk away it's ridiculous we've come instantaneous gratification things have to happen now and you translate that into a life of faith it is very complicated because God doesn't work on a timer he doesn't answer our prayers one-to-one walking in faith is not unlike any other discipline however in life if you're a runner If you exercise, if you train for a race of some kind, you start out in small increments over time, your discipline over a long period of time, and eventually you can do it. The other night I went to see some children who play Suzuki violin, and these kids practice every day with a parent. Four-year-old kids playing a violin. Eighteen-year-old kids playing a violin like an adult has practiced for years because they practice every single day. So you don't become a great violin player overnight. It takes years to play a violin well. Why do we look at the life of faith being that much different? In fact, it's a good parallel. that Living a life of faith is a life of discipline, a life of decisions, a life of waiting. And over time, we see the accumulation of that faith turn into something we did not quite expect. The promise is given to Sarah now in chapter 17, verses 15. This entire text is a divine discourse. We talked about last week, if there were red-letter Old Testaments, this would be largely all in red because God is speaking to Abraham. And so the bulk of the chapter is God's discourse to Abraham. It's the longest explanation of the covenant from chapter 12, then to chapter 15, and now chapter 17. Let's read the promise to Sarah. And let me ask you to read it with me from the screen, verses 15 through 16, Genesis chapter 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And specifically, the promise now is very direct and somewhat detailed about Sarah. That hasn't been true in the past. She's sort of, sort of been, oh, by the way, part of the package. But now we've got this explanation that's a further disclosure. Uh, we're told she's going to have princes and nations and kings will come from her. Notice the declarative nature. Some of this is a little Bible study method. Uh, help for those of you who may be just starting to read your Bible. When you read the word, I will... I shall. Uh, these are called declarative statements. When the psalmist says I will pray uh, saying I will praise, I will. He's he's saying I'm making a choice to do something, a declarative statement. When God says it, we pay close attention, not unlike what he said in Genesis twelve. Here he says, I will bless her. I will give her a son. I will bless her, and she will be a mother. And so these declarative statements are God saying, I'm going to do this and Again, listen carefully, not not as though she's a puppet, but he's saying, I'm gonna do it, we might say, quote, with or without her cooperation, close quote. Now that's not exactly what the text is saying, but I want you to see the declarative nature of this of this comment. God's gonna do this just as he's gonna execute the Abrahamic covenant. It's a promise, it's a guarantee from God. For those of you who like to do Bible study methods on your own, you might want to a little project, take these three verses and these two verses and verses four through eight and put them side by side and make some comparisons. You'll have a lot of fun. We mentioned last weekend, Sarah, it means princess. So if you're Sarah and you have a princess complex, we absolve you. That's okay. That's your namesake. Um, the command here is no longer call her Sarai, but Sarah. Uh, Sarah will be her name. It's implied Sarah is going to give you a son. Remember Abraham's complaint or lament, not a whine or complaining like a child, Biblically a complaint or a lament is a question to God, not necessarily an inappropriate one. He said, You've promised me this thing, but where are my children? And in Genesis fifteen, thirteen he says, Since you have given me no offspring. Well now he's told her that Sarah is the one where the son is going to come from again. He's reassuring Abraham, as he has in the past, Abraham, I'm going to give you land which he's begun to get. I'm giving you a covenant, which is what he's enacting, and you're going to have children that'll be like the stars in the heaven, like the sand in the sea. Now Abraham will have the long-awaited son. Again, the covenant promise is unfolded. And if we step back on this a little bit, Abraham continues living in faith over a long period of time, and God continues to encourage him over a long period of time. That doesn't mean there's not waiting But at these opportune times in God's economy, he interrupts and he gives him more information about the covenant, more information about the promise, more information. I care about you, Abraham. It's been 25 years. He was 75 years old. Now he's up to 100. He's waited for this promise. That's a long time to wait. Well, Abraham responds in verse 17. Again, why don't you read with me from the screen. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is the second time Abraham falls on his face in chapter 17. It's an idiom expression for worship. When he, the Old Testament, when you fell on your face, you were worshiping. You were prostrate, worshiping God. Again, to remind you, uh, Christ has appeared. We call these theophanies or Christophanies, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. So Jesus is talking to Abraham. This isn't some uh, light or epiphany or noise coming from the stars. This is Christ speaking to Abraham, and he falls on the ground and worships him a second time. Um, Klaus Westermann writes of this section, the gesture of reverence, meaning the falling on his face, uh, is Abraham's first and in any case required reaction. But then he laughs. Sarah's laughter in chapter 18 is at the announcement is understandable. But Abraham's laughter in 1717 17 has something of the bizarre about it. In the immediate confrontation with God who is making a marvelous promise to him, God, in responding, does not pursue it. And what Westerman's saying here is when Sarah, Sarah laughs in 18, God's going to sort of upbraid her. You laughed. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Uh, here there's no comment about it so Westerman observes he does not pursue it God has promised to act he continues along his majestic way which is above understanding beyond Abraham's laughter and doubt the name of his son which is a play on Abraham's laughter will attest To the marvelous action of God. I want to talk a little bit about the name and laughter, but for a second. But when we read the Bible, one of one of the things we we often do is we ask questions that the text can't answer. And some people have great frustration. Well, you know, what does it mean about this? And what does it mean about that? And one of the rules of Bible study is you always don't ask the text to tell you something it's not trying to tell you. Take the text at face value, what it is saying, and we look elsewhere for some of these answers that we may or may not be able to find. But the Bible doesn't answer every question about life. It doesn't tell us how to fix our lawnmower. It doesn't tell us what, you know, how big your house should be or how many children. The Bible gives us all we need for a life of faith and following Christ. It doesn't answer every question we have about every matter in life. So there are going to be why questions we're not going to know the answer to. But here it is important to put a little attention to the laughter and what's going on. Now, in verse 17, Abraham's laughter in Hebrew is the word sahak, sahak. So Abraham laughed to himself in, this, in the Hebrew word, tzahak. And then God says, you're going to name your child Itzach." So Abraham's laughter and the name Isaac are a word play in Hebrew. It doesn't translate in English to the English ear, but it's his laughter, tzahak. You're going to name your child Itzhak, Isaac. Now, is Abram doubting God? Some think it's a delightful laugh he's like am I going to have a son finally at a hundred years of age this is hard to believe kind of laughter others think it's his doubt the text does not tell us but the wordplay gives us a little bit of a hint on what's going on remember he's followed God thus far he left Ur he's still believing the promise yeah I'd like to see an answer to my to your promise God but I'm still on track yes he's made mistakes yes he will make more mistakes But he's still following God at the core. And that's the power of the life of Abraham's faith. He kept on plotting. Even though he didn't have all the answers, even though he made some missteps, he kept trusting God. Again, the structure of the verse, I think, is helpful to see some of the art behind it. Abraham said in his heart. Abraham said to God. And then the transition in verse 19, but God said. So Abraham says something. Uh, in his heart. He says something to God, and then God intervenes and says, let me tell you, let me say something. So verse 19, but God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. The Lord is clear that Abraham's heir will be born of him and of Sarah. Ishmael will not be the one. You shall call his name Isaac, Yitz, Yitzhak is a lifelong reminder. And every time you say the word, there's a wordplay going on. Every time, you, oh, Isaac, it's like, oh, laughing one. Oh, happy memory. Oh, oh boy, that gives me delight in my life. And so the laughter motif continues throughout Isaac's entire life. He's named, we might think of it as joyful more than a mocking laugh. But in Hebrew, that lilt of you laughed, we're going to name your son a similar sounding word, Isaac. The students of Hebrew like to look at names in great detail and the word plays and the double meanings of words. Alan Ross writes of the laughter motif. He says, It is presented in the story by the naming and the word play to remind of God's favor at birth. God's laughter will be superimposed on theirs. His pleasure, God's pleasure, in giving the Son would be greater than their doubts. He continues the word play between the name and the name. And the narrator's use of the verb in the stories stresses God's blessing over against their doubts. What about Ishmael? Abraham loves the boy Ishmael. And God gives a promise in regard to the son. Verse 20 as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. And I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes. And I will make him a great nation but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Ishmael is not the covenant son. Ishmael will not share in the covenant promise, but Ishmael will be blessed. Uh, God's word is reliable and true even to this boy, and so he will continue to receive God's favor. By the way, if you cross-reference your Bible, and cross-reference again, these are things we most of you know how to use them. Some perhaps have not really tried to use them. In the middle of your Bible or the margin, you probably have some cross-references, little, little letter above a word. And sometimes these will fill in the blanks when we forget what is actually going on in the story. And I want to show you three cross-references that if you have them in your Bible around verse 20 and 21, these are the three that you probably have on your sidebar or in the middle of your column there. Genesis 16, 10, 21, 18, and twenty-five, twelve and following. Let me just give you the context and read a part of each one of those uh cross references. Why do the Bible translators put those cross references in there? To remind us of a story that sometimes can be a little complicated to keep in, in mind. In chapter sixteen ten, Hagar had run away from Sarah Sarai, because she was treating her harshly, and she encounters uh, the angel of the Lord, and he says to her in sixteen ten, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count so the first time hagar runs away with this child and into the wilderness the angel appears to her and says i'm going to bless him so this isn't a new blessing he's reminding abraham of what he's already promised hagar in chapter 21 verse 18 we read the angel of god called to hagar arise lift up the lad hold him by the hand i will make a great nation of him and that's after they have been pushed out of the camp Uh, he's uh, Isaac has been born he's taunting the the young Isaac and so she's done so Sarah sends her away permanently and so Hagar and the teenage boy Ishmael go off and she fears he's going to die and when God speaks to her in this way she looks up and there's an uh, oasis right in front of her so he lives and he goes on to be a great nation Genesis 25 records the great nation in verses 12 and following, you have the 12 sons, the villages, the tribal things, the tribal chiefs mentioned, and the epitaph is, is horrible, it's palpable on Ishmael's life. But the epitaph in twenty five eighteen, he settled in defiance of all his relatives. So some of us have children that have broken our hearts, and you see a son here who was not part of the covenant promise, but he was part of God's rich blessing. And he could have stayed in that family system and been a beneficiary of the covenant promise, but he leaves and he becomes a powerful prince of his day. Those names are recorded for immemorial uh, in, memorial in uh, Genesis 25, the record of God's promise coming true. So from Ishmael's birth to his final death, he becomes a nation. He becomes a man whose children are princes with large tribal villages. Well, God promises to motivate God's people as they obey. God promises to motivate his people as we obey. Look at verses 22 and following. When he finished talking with him, God went up uh, from Abraham. So now the red letter stops, we might say. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the the men of Abram's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in that very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of the household who were born in the household or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Again, as a reminder, this is a group of people, some estimates 1,200-plus people, maybe more, maybe less, but had amalgamated and started following along with Abraham. He'd acquired many of them from Egypt when he'd gone down to Egypt and lied about Sarah being his sister. He brought herds and flocks and servants to manage those herds and flocks. And during these 20-plus years, they they have reproduced. They have been born in his household. The only son he's had is the half-son Ishmael. He hasn't had a son of Sarah yet, but that is Abraham's tribe. So all of them are going to be uh, aligned with this covenant promise and the seal that God had given. Now, this is a sojourn of faithfulness. God has called Abraham to do something, to be a blessing to the entire world. And for 25 years, he's trying to figure out precisely what that means. Uh, His sojourn of faith comes from all sorts of different backgrounds not only his own but the egyptian backgrounds that are brought into the tribal thing and then as they move around in what we would call today israel or the middle eastern area they're they're com- combining and congealing different cultures and now this sign of the covenant the circumcision is going to align them as a people group the sign would seal the covenant. If Again, if you're a Bible student who is in the Word every day, which I hope you all are, uh, Romans 4 is a great parallel to look at how Paul explains the sign of circumcision from a spiritual side of things. Abraham's sojourn of faith is going to continue without delay. Verse 22, when he had finished talking. Verse 26, in the very same day. So after Christ has gone away from him, he goes to work and he performs circumcision on everyone. The faithful obedience is not dilatory; he doesn't procrastinate, and we'll see this again when God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. He doesn't wait. Early the next morning, he goes to obey. Um, I remember years ago Elizabeth Elliot passed away this past week, and I was combing through some some memorabilia. I had heard her speak on a number of occasions, and we were in a Q and A session at this one. Uh, situation and a person asked a question and they preface it with I really struggle with and they went on to talk about this problem and Elizabeth Elliott d- without a beat said I've always des- defined struggle as delayed obedience and we all kind of went well I'm glad I didn't ask that question <laughs> um, I've always remembered it struggle is a delayed obedience I really wrestle with it I really wrestle with fill in the blank I really struggle with is delayed obedience. Abraham executes obedience right away. A couple of lessons from this divine discourse. Two simply, there's a new name and a new sign. The new names for Abraham, Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, and now a new name for Isaac in a sense. This child will be a child of laughing, of joy, of bringing you joy, of fulfilling my covenant. Certainly it will be a great encouragement to Abram and Sarai to have to go back to their entourage and tell them our names are now changed. We would invite some mockery, no doubt. And then to execute circumcision as a sign would probably have been an interesting conversation to see that implemented when Abraham said all the men are going to be circumcised today including me, including my son Ishmael. Um, even in their sin and their wanderings, the pious Jew always comes back to the name. The name is everything. Uh, Americans choose names for all kinds of reasons. We name children. Sometimes it's a family name. Sometimes it's an invented name. Sometimes it's a name we liked. Uh, those stories are interesting. Uh, the Hebrew took it very differently. name was very important. And the name Abraham and Sarai will be and more moralized even today whether it's orthodox or reformed jews uh, they are names that are revered it's an alignment with what god has called a person now the new sign is a vivid right it sets them apart remember last week the covenant means to cut something circumcision means to cut and here we were told last chapter if you don't have this circumcision you're going to be cut off so the, covenant, the cutting of the covenant is going to be reminded by you being cut in circumcision. And if you're not, you're cut off from the community. So it's a rich text of language explaining what the covenant and the cutting of it required to be part of that community. The Jews to this day follow circumcision religiously, even if they're extremely reformed, liberal, all the way to the Orthodox. It's done on the eighth day. It's done by a mullah, or a mullah is the one who's, who's trained to be able to do the circumcision. And there's all kinds of uh, things written about why they do it on the eighth day, uh, even some medical attempts to explain uh, child development by the time a boy's eight days old. Things happen in his chemistry, and whatever. He clots better, so forth and so on. Who knows? It's interesting, God said, do it on the eighth day. And Christ is taken up on the eighth day and presented in the temple. And undoubtedly, he's circumcised. Um, Jews continued circumcision even during imprisonment. Uh, Obviously, not many people were born during the Holocaust and during the encampments, but some were. And even in those encampments, if a boy was born, he was circumcised ritually. It is still practiced today. It is a big event. We think about a 16th birthday or a first birthday today. I'm, I'm amazed what we do with number one birthdays these days. It's astonishing what we do to a child. They don't remember any of it, but we have inflatables, and maybe you do that. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes. I'm just flabbergasted. It's more about the parent than the kid. Let's get that out right there, right? They don't remember anything. They just get sugar. That's all they know. Um, But maybe you're 16, maybe high school graduation, maybe college graduation, certainly marriage. Circumcision is a very important right for the Jew, even to this day. Now, you and I have a new name, and you and I have a new sign. Uh, God didn't appear to us and change our name from Mike to Michael or Bill to William, but God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, has given you a new name called Christian. Believer, follower of Christ, a child of the King, many names we have. Disciple, that new name should mean more than just a cliche, I'm a Christian, it's a new identity. If you trusted in Christ, in Christ alone, he's given you a new name, he's called you his child, he's adopted you as his son or daughter, and he is the perfect father. And that new name means everything to us. Is it our hope? We were illegitimate, throwaway people. And if you trusted in Christ, in Christ alone, you've been grafted into the kingdom. You've been grafted into the Jewish legacy. You've been grafted into the messianic promise. And you are a child of the king. You're an heir to a kingdom. You did not earn You could not earn. You didn't deserve. But he has made us a new name. And we are related to the king. And we also have a new sign. And the sign is a sealing. Let me read from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In fact, why don't you read it with me. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 off the screen. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of god's own possession to the praise of his glory Chalk full of theology two verses um the moment you trusted christ the holy spirit became a permanent resident in your life he's a permanent roommate he's never going to go away um Part of the concrete, abstract trouble we have with children, we tell them, ask Jesus into their hearts. It's a really bad metaphor. Because if a child is a concrete thinker, Jesus goes in, opens a door on their heart, sits in a chair, and closes the door. Uh, number one, Scripture never says, ask Jesus into your heart. It says to believe or trust in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. We think that's too abstract for a child. That's because we're uncomfortable with it. A child gets it childlike faith they believe but we have to modify it so but that picture of god coming into your heart while it's not the best picture there is a sense in which the holy spirit becomes our permanent roommate and he's a seal now in roman time of course there were seals and by the time ephesians is written the roman empire is still ruling and the roman seal whether it was on the tomb of christ with soldiers what did it do it assured the contents were undisturbed a seal ensures the contents are undisturbed. So if we wrote a scroll, it was a message from a king handed to an ambassador to be delivered to a, another country or another village, another city. That seal, that signet, assured the contents were undisturbed. So when the recipient gets that letter, we would call it, breaks the seal and opens it, they know that's what the king said. That's what the emperor said. That's what, you know, the praetor said. We can trust it as his word. So the picture is very simple. When you and I trust Christ... We're sealed by the person and work of the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. The contents are undisturbed, uncorrupted, because our seal is permanent. This passage is rich. We're sealed for the day of redemption. It's a pledge. It's a down payment. It's a deposit. I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you as a permanent deposit until the day you're redeemed to assure the contents are undisturbed, the contents are right. And so when you trusted Christ, whether you knew it or not, the Holy Spirit indwelled you and sealed you until the day of redemption. And that seal cannot be broken. So we walk by faith. We have a new name and a new seal. You're a believer in Christ. You're not simply an alum of some school. You're not roll-tied. As hard as that is for you to separate from your existence, you're not roll-tied. You're not a vol. As hard as that is to tease out, your identity's in Christ. You're not even American. You're not even a patriot. You're not a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian. You're a believer in Christ. I have a friend of mine who's a politician, and he, he says, uh, I'm, a con- I'm a Christian first, and then he names his party second, and then he says, and I'm not mad about it. Because he always gets wirebrushed by the media about being a Christian. And he goes, I'm a Christian first, and then I'm a so-and-so second, And then he goes, and I'm not mad about it. And he said that for 25 years. He's a sitting governor. I love the way he does it. I'm a Christian first. That's who I am. I applaud his career. He didn't make every perfect decision. Boy, I applaud him for putting it out there. Because now everybody's going to examine his life and examine what he does based on that first statement. I went to a change of command many, many times in D.C. One of my closest friends, two-star general, took over uh, the most prestigious base in the world. And he stood up in front of, I mean, this is all the dignitaries on the days, the Secretary of Defense, everybody, it's a big deal. And he says, three things you need to know about General So-and-so. Number one, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Boom. Afterwards, I said, General, isn't that like a career-ending thing to say in this climate? He said, Michael, the day I got my commission, I told the Lord I would always tell people I was a Christian first, not an officer. And he did it till he retired. And God in his kindness had favor on him. Doesn't always work that way, does it? But his identity was, my name is a believer. If you trust Christ, men and women, you have a new identity. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. He loves you. He paid for all your sin. He forgives every sin you have done and every sin you will do. And he's given you a new seal. You'll be with him forever in heaven. Question now, do you live a life of faith differently because you got a new name, and a new seal. And that's the journey of Abraham. It struck me this week that Abraham will spend his entire life trying to believe three verses. Go back to Genesis 12 and read it sometime. He didn't have this book. This book isn't going to be put into written form for a long time after, he, after the law comes. He heard three verses At at the base, three verses from God. Leave your people. Follow me. Go to a land I'll show you. Hebrews will fill in the blank. He didn't even know where he was going. I'm going to bless you. The world will be blessed by you. I will give you land and a covenant promise. Three short verses the way we read it. He spends his entire life trying to figure out what it means to walk by faith on three stanzas. How many verses do we have? And what more do we need? You've been given a new name. And He sealed you with his very presence of his Holy Spirit. Can you live by faith? The good news is, as with Abraham, as we live a life of faith, he continues to encourage. He doesn't leave us on our own. He continues to encourage God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. And we walk this long journey that's undefined and not quite, explained along the way the way we'd like it it's not instantly answered the way we'd want it but that's a life of faith father we love you again we want to love you well we want to live by faith in our marriages in our parenting in our jobs we want to live by faith in the way we interface with people in our business in our practice as a teacher as a homemaker as a businessman or woman as an attorney as a physician those who've been through divorces or going through divorces those who have children who are uh, causing great challenges those with health issues that just wear us out we want to live by faith no matter what our experience tries to tell us we thank you for a new name that you call us your own you call us a child of the king you call us your children you love us We thank you for the seal of your Spirit who imprints upon our soul that we are bought and paid for, that we have an eternal place with you in heaven, a kingdom we couldn't earn or deserve, a place we would never see apart from your work. And help us to live on three verses, as it were, between now and then, with such great faith. Give us the faith even to do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.